We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. When you're getting ready to buy most anything, from a car to a new phone you're likely to think long and hard about where you spend your money. Maybe you'll head online to check the reviews. You might even insist on getting a chance to try it out before you buy, just to make sure it's exactly what you expect it to be. But when it comes to the medications we take, the drugs that we rely on to keep us healthy, most of us just buy whatever's cheapest without ever really giving it a second thought. But should we? I'm Keith Manconi. This is In Depth, and today on the program, we're going to be speaking with Catherine Eban. She's an investigative journalist and author. Her new book is Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. It's a book that sheds light on the often opaque world of drug manufacture, a world that has become even more opaque as more of that manufacturing work has been moved overseas. And what it finds when it shines that light is enough to give us pause. So we're very lucky to be able to discuss it with her now. Uh, Catherine Eban, thanks for being on In Depth. Thanks for having me. So that framing that I just gave there of uh, consumer choice, it's actually straight out of your book, but I think it's worth highlighting this assumption that we all have about medication that basically a pill is a pill is a pill. They're all basically created equal. But your book demonstrates that not all manufacturers are holding up their end of the bargain. So Let's talk about how that came to be. First, let's kind of set some basic facts here. I think many of our listeners would be a little bit surprised to find out just how much of drug manufacturing is taking place overseas. It's really staggering. Um, 40% of all of our generics are manufactured in India. The vast majority across the board are manufactured overseas. 80% of the active ingredient in all our drugs, whether brand or generic, are also manufactured overseas, the majority in India and China. Add this into the fact that 90% of our drug supply is generic. And what that means is that we are very reliant, if not dependent, on overseas manufacturing. And remind our listeners uh, the difference between generic and name brand drugs. Yeah. So name brand drugs are molecules that have been sort of created and innovated by brand name companies, and those drugs are protected by patents. And either once those patents lapse or they are challenged in court, then generic manufacturers can come in, and if they're approved by the FDA, they can make a drug that uses the same active ingredient um, and is equivalent or deemed equivalent by the FDA. So tell us a little bit about the backstory of how this all came to be. It's kind of wrapped up in the story of uh, how we first came to use so many generic drugs in our system, and this really goes back to sort of the 1980s, right? Yeah, it does. So in the 1980s, there was a piece of legislation passed called the Hatch-Waxman Act 
What that did is it really ignited the generic drug industry. Before that, generic drug manufacturers had to go through the exact same steps as brand companies. They had to prove safety and efficacy. They had to do huge clinical trials, and it was really overwhelming for generic companies. Hatch-Waxman gave them an abbreviated pathway. It said, you don't have to prove safety and efficacy because we have already proven that with the brand drug. What you have to do is test the drug on maybe a dozen to two dozen healthy volunteers. You have to prove the drug is bioequivalent. In other words, the rate of absorption of the drug into the blood is similar to that of the brand. But it gave the generic companies an incentive to do this. It said the applicant who applies first to the FDA and is approved first gets something called first to file, six months of market exclusivity at about 80% of the brand name price. And to generic drug manufacturers, that was really an incentive to be first through the door. So it created a kind of gold rush of companies trying to be first to get approval from the FDA. And many of these drug manufacturers then had the opportunity to take their operations overseas, largely to China and India? Absolutely. I mean, this was a a terrific way for them to cut labor costs, cut supply costs, but also to get less scrutiny from the FDA. Because even though the FDA says all the plants are inspected similarly, in fact, a, a manufacturing plant that's operating 7,000 miles away from regulators in Maryland is by definition going to be less scrutinized. All right, so now let's get to the heart of the matter, because I think for many of us, when we think about the term generic drugs, we have fairly positive associations with it. It's a way to save money. It's a way to keep our staggeringly high healthcare costs down at least a little bit. But we're lucky to have uh, intrepid investigative journalists such as yourself to notice when something goes wrong. And you did notice something starting to go wrong a number of years ago. Tell us when you first started getting reports from consumers that something might be awry. Well, actually, the first way that I heard about this, I got a phone call in 2008 from a radio show host named Joe Graydon. He runs a show called The People's Pharmacy, and patients were writing into him, calling him, and saying that they were having strange side effects or difficulty after their medication was switched, either from brand to generic or between different generic versions. He took those complaints to the FDA, and the regulators there basically responded that they thought these complaints were psychosomatic because the drug color had changed, the drug shape had changed, and patients were having trouble psychically making this adjustment. But Graydon suspected there was something actually wrong with the drugs, and he suggested that I investigate, and so I began to do that. And that's a pretty tricky thing to investigate if those manufacturing plants are all the way overseas. Where did you start to get a sense that there might be a really big story here? So I started with the patients, and I was able to document that there were really troubling health problems for patients with some of these generics, Some of the doctors were baffled. They didn't have data on why this was happening. But then I learned about a company called Rambaxi, which was India's largest generic drug company. And I found out that there was an ongoing investigation 
into whether that company had fabricated some of its quality data. I investigated that company for a number of years. I obtained a huge number of internal documents. It turned out um, that company had been falsifying quality data for over 200 products, drug products being sold in 40 countries around the world. So millions of patients were taking substandard drugs, including U.S. patients. Uh, and I had a big story that ran in Fortune magazine in 2013, which exposed this. And after that, I had a major question. Was Rambaxi an outlier or was it the tip of the iceberg? Was this conduct that was somehow spread throughout the industry? And that reporting took me all over the world. It took me to four continents. I interviewed over 240 people. A number of them were whistleblowers. I obtained 20,000 internal FDA documents and a pretty shocking picture emerged about widespread data fabrication throughout the generic drug industry. So obviously a, a lot of interesting reporting there, a lot of uh, tr troubling findings there. Let's sort that our listeners really understand the consequences of this, though. Mm -hmm. Before we get to the FDA response and before we get to maybe the, the, the broader issues of how many companies and how many manufacturers are involved in this, what are some of the complications that uh, that users of these medications are are having? I I, I think I saw a reference uh, to a 2007 case of kidney patients who died from an allergic reaction after uh, dialysis. So I mean, there, there there are real consequences when these drugs are, are gotten wrong. Yeah, in the book, I I feature um, a cardiac doctor at Cleveland Clinic. Uh, whose, some of whose patients who were heart transplant patients suffered organ rejection after being switched to um, a generic immunosuppressant drug made by a company called Dr. Reddy's. Um, so they had been fine on the brand name drug, which is called Prograph. Then they left the Cleveland Clinic, went to a CVS pharmacy, were switched to this Dr. Reddy's formulation, which is a lot cheaper, which is a good thing, but they ended up back in the emergency room and back in the ICU with symptoms of organ rejection. And so, you know, there's a number of things that are happening, which is in companies where data is being fabricated, the drugs may not be bioequivalent. They may not dissolve in the same way and at the same rate. Um, they may have um, particulates, foreign matter, glass particles, metallic fragments. Um, they may have carcinogenic impurities, and that is a huge issue right now with generic blood pressure medication, which has been widely recalled. Um, and as a result, that drug is in shortage. So, you know, what I was trying to do in reporting around the world was connect all these dots. You know, you had the patients with symptoms, you had FDA investigators going into plants and finding fabricated data and uh, unsterile, unsanitary conditions. Um, you had company executives signing off on uh, fabrication of data, shredding of incriminating documents. Uh, and what I was really trying to do is just connect all these dots across the world, which may be one reason why the book 
literally, I mean, I reported this for 10 years. Uh, that's how hard it was to figure all this out. For those of you who might just be joining us right now, you're listening to KCBS's In Depth. Today we're speaking to Catherine Eban. She's an investigative journalist and author. Her new book is Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. And I think a lot of our listeners might be wondering right now, well, how did some of these things happen? How did it actually get that bad? And I think that there's sort of two sides to the answer to that question. One is the regulatory side, and the other is the culture in the manufacturing plants that uh, you visited and reported on. Let's start with the manufacturing side. Why was the attitude towards manufacturing a little bit different at many of these uh, plants that are overseas as opposed to what we might expect here in the U.S.? It's a great question. So as I was reporting, a lot of sources talked to me about culture. There's company culture, what does a company value and promote? Is it promoting profits? Is it promoting patient safety? Is it promoting quality? And that can also be connected to country culture. You know, are, are countries, is there a deference to authority? Are workers in these plants in very vulnerable situations where they fear for their jobs? Or are they encouraged to speak out? Uh, and in fact, you know, in India, where you have a caste system, you have very vulnerable employees, you have, uh, you know, very, very heavy-handed hierarchies in these plants, often that can be a, a recipe for not questioning certain management decisions, you know, not to mention which there is no real protected pathway for whistleblowers in that system. Um, and the other the other thing I would say is, throughout my reporting, I kept hearing a word, it's a Hindi word called jugad. And jugad is a sort of shorthand for a, a style or an approach that is valued in corporate India, which is taking shortcuts to get to the desired result by the quickest means possible. And while that can be a sort of creative, it can also be disastrous. For example, if you fabricate data and submit a drug application to the FDA claiming that you know how to make a drug, in fact, before you can. And in some cases, companies got approval to manufacture drugs and they were still failing in the laboratory. And yet those were sold to US patients. So I did uncover instances like that in my reporting. So let's talk about the regulatory side of things. We've sort of hinted at this already a little bit, but there are real challenges for uh, the FDA inspectors that are going out to these factories, A, because they're so far away, and, and B, because of just the logistics of planning a trip like that. How does that translate into looser inspections actually taking place? Right. So the FDA... Um has been very quick to reassure consumers that they have a inspection system that is the same whether a plant is in Indiana or in India. Um, but in fact, there are some key differences. So in the US, FDA inspectors will arrive unannounced at manufacturing plants and stay as long as is needed. Um, for inspections overseas, the FDA announces its inspections in advance sometimes weeks or months in advance. And they say they do that because it eases logistics with trying to get visas, making sure the appropriate people are at a plant. 
But the result of that has been to allow these companies to essentially stage inspections. They have, in some instances, brought in data fabrication teams to invent documents. Um, they'll clean up bird infestations and lizard infestations and get rid of insects. I mean, as one investigator said to me, you know, give them a weekend, they can put up a building. But in some cases, they're getting weeks of advance notice. Um, and that really has resulted in inspections that don't reflect the actual conditions in a plant. Yeah, your book also contains an account of one factory worker running away from an FDA inspector with just a bag of uh, fraudulent records. Yeah. And y you almost want to laugh about this until you remember how serious the consequences of this are. One of the, uh, I think, most upsetting findings that you had is, you know, for all these troubling uh, practices that you're discussing right there, the attitude towards selling drugs in uh, African countries is even more lax because they know they can get away with even more. Yeah, that was really one of the most shocking findings to me, which is these companies, even though they are manufacturing compromised drugs often for highly regulated markets like the U.S. and the European Union, they're sending their worst drugs to uh, developing markets, to India, to Africa, to certain areas of South America. Um, you know, you would think a drug is a drug, right? Lipitor is going to be the same anywhere in the world. And in fact, a lot of, you know, U.S. citizens think, hey, if I'm taking a trip to India, I'm going to be a smart consumer and buy my drugs over there more cheaply from the Indian market. But in fact, the quality can be quite different. And there's actually even a name for this in the industry. It's called dual track production or row A, row B production. You're going to make drugs of one quality for one market and of a lower quality for a different market where you're not going to get caught. And, and so essentially the manufacturing, the manufacturing standard boils down to whatever you can get away with. Let's head back to the Ranbaxy example. And I think it's a good illustration of both. On the one hand, you know, there, there is some effort being made to rein some of this in. But on the other hand, it's maybe not quite accomplishing as much as we would, would hope it to. I mean, so this is a case where there was an actual whistleblower that came forward, and this would have never been opened up if that whistleblower hadn't come forward. But it was also nearly a decade uh, after that whistleblower first came forward until uh, the case was uh, finally uh, ended in, in 2013. Tell us a little bit about why it took so long. Yeah, I mean, Rambaxi is really an extraordinary story. So there is a whistleblower who's one of the main characters in the book, Dinesh Thakur. He was a young uh, engineer who came from Bristol-Myers Squibb and was recruited to India's largest drug company, Rambaxi. Uh, and he went over there and moved his whole family. And his boss um, had become suspicious about some of the data in Rambaxi. And so he gave Thakur an assignment, which was to review all of the data in the dossiers for drugs around the world and see what was real and what was fake. And what Tucker uncovered with his team was that the drugs for more than, more than 200 drug products in more than 40 countries were, uh, had fabricated data. 
made up data, faked data. Sometimes they would use brand name drugs and crush them up and test them as though it were the company's own drugs and submit that data. Um, so once this got exposed and it was presented to a subcommittee of the board of directors and their, uh, what they proposed is that they bury the information and destroy the laptop that the that the information was created on. So long and short, Dinesh Thakur is forced out of the company and he becomes a whistleblower for the FDA. He approaches the agency in 2005, has these scorching documents, and yet over the next eight years, even as the company is being investigated for fraud, he watches as the as the company gets one drug approval after another from the FDA. And in 2011, the FDA approved the company for the biggest generic drug launch in history, generic Lipitor, which probably a lot of the listeners have taken, made by Rambaxi. So for six months, that was the only generic Lipitor on the market. A year after that launch, millions of those pills had to be recalled because they had glass particles in them. And then in 2013, Rambaxi pleaded guilty to seven felonies. I want to remind our listeners one last time that you're listening to KCBS's In-Depth. Once again, uh, we are speaking with Catherine Eban. Uh, her book is Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. And uh, there is a lot in that story, as we've been discussing so far, a lot to dig into. Let's get to the FDA response to all this. Uh, in fact, uh, CBS ran a story about earlier this month uh, related to this topic of uh, drug manufacturer, and they got a response from the FDA. So I'm going to read part of that response mm-hmm. uh, right now. Uh, they said, quote, as drug manufacturing has globalized over the years, uh, we have modernized our policies to ensure that companies meet the FDA's strict standards for producing medicine for U.S. patients that are high quality, safe and effective. Goes on. Over the past several years, we have conducted a number of unannounced inspections at foreign manufacturing facilities. They say that that's a critical approach when we have information from a whistleblower or when the FB- FDA is investigating a drug safety issue. So their take is that they are responding to these global challenges, but based on uh, what you're turning up, I, I, w- I would assume that you feel that it's not quite enough. Well, let me tell you this story, which is based on some of these findings of fraud. Uh, in 2014, um, the FDA gave a green light to run a pilot program in India, where it the agreement was they would do all their inspections in the country unannounced or on short notice. That lasted for a year and a half and the findings were staggering. They found the data fabrication teams, they found bird infestations, they found that some of these plants were even fabricating their own sterility data, proving that the plants were sterile. Uh, And the expectation from the investigators in India is that this was going to become the new way that the FDA did inspections globally. Um, Instead of that, the FDA ended the pilot program and went back to doing pre-announced inspections. And that's what they do right now. So uh, instead of expanding the program, they ended it. The other thing that I found is that in many investigations where the, the investigators um, propose that the plants get the most severe sanction, 
which is official action indicated, which basically means they have to course correct immediately or their products are going to be restricted. In over 110 different inspections over six years, the FDA downgraded those findings. They took the inspector's recommendations of official action indicated and downgraded them to voluntary action indicated. That essentially got 110 different Indian plants off the hook from the most severe findings. Um, you might ask, well, why is the FDA doing that? Uh, I don't have a perfect answer, but I suspect it is because we are totally reliant on these drugs. And without those drugs, there would be severe drug shortages. Mm, yeah, just because of the amount of cost reductions that they're responsible for. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, taking this and bringing it back to the realm of the consumers in mm-hmm. all of us, what are we supposed to make of all of this? How can we, and this seems like such a big problem to wrap your arms around, wrap your head around. How can I, as a consumer, actually use this information to make myself a little bit safer? Right. So first of all, I think consumers, number one, need to be aware of who is making their drugs. You know, most of us go to a pharmacy, we're dispensed a prescription, and we really don't look at the manufacturer, the label, to see who's making the drug. But if you take a maintenance medication, you you know, a monthly medication, you really want to know that. First of all, if the drug is working, you want to stay with that manufacturer. If the drug is not working and you have side effects, you're going to want to change. You know, another thing that consumers can think about is there are such a thing as authorized generics. Those are um, generics that are being made with the sort of approval and agreement of the brand name companies, often following the same recipe, often made in the very same plant as the brand name drug. So that's another option to consider. The other thing is, if consumers are having problems at the moment, they do have to do some of their own research. But if you put in a manufacturer name, the words FDA and warning letter into Google, you can find out, was a company sanctioned? What did the FDA discover in their plants? Are there issues of data fabrication? Are there warning letters? I mean, those are the kinds of things that can help educate consumers as they make decisions about which manufacturers' drugs they want to take. It sounds like on a basic level, you're almost calling for a change in our understanding of our relationship to these drugs. I think at one point in the introduction, you you talk about how we understand as consumers that there is a difference between one block of cheese and another block of cheese. There's the high-end cheese, there's the middle-end cheese, but we don't quite have that understanding when it comes to drugs, and maybe we need to. That's exactly right. I mean, one FDA consultant put it to be this way, which is savvy consumers know the difference between Velveeta, Kraft, and artisanal cheddar. And in fact, you know, pharmaceuticals also come in Velveeta or artisanal versions. Uh, You know, and we don't think about it basically because we've been reassured by the FDA that all these drugs are the same. But you know, I guess my message to consumers is that there are these quality choices that are embedded in a trip to the pharmacy. All right. Well, that is a hefty dose of reality. We all just got administered. Uh, (laughs) Perhaps a tough pill for some of us to swallow, but very. uh, we thank you very much for it. Again, we have been speaking to Catherine Eban. Uh, She is once again an investigative journalist and author, and her new book, Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom, is out now. Uh, Catherine Eban, thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And as a reminder, you can catch past episodes of In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and I'll see you next time. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 